From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. We can officially say spring is in full swing with baseball and softball both underway. And given the crooked numbers they've posted in the early going, their swings have literally been quite full. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators Sean Kelly for a roundtable chat discussing the early mashings handed out on the diamond. Swimming and Diving's SEC Double Dip, an emotional senior night on the horizon for gymnastics and Trinity Thomas, and TV shows that captivate in the PAT. Then, we'll take a deep dive into the world of advanced data and how it's driving the men's hoops program with the Director of Basketball Strategy and Analytics, Jonathan Sapphire. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We've got the whole gang here for our roundtable. It's the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry. A lot of things to get to, guys. A, a, a diverse menu of Gator topics today. We talked a lot last week about baseball getting underway and the, the anticipation for it. And uh, Scott, it seems that the anticipation was definitely there in the Gator bats, who just exploded in this opening series. Uh, and, and I guess... A perfect time for everyone to learn about the uh, the introduction of the new run rule that baseball is employing in certain situations because it it saved everybody a lot of time and and probably some some arms this weekend as well. Yeah, I mean the Saturday game was I think two hours and twenty two minutes. That'll probably be the fastest game of the year, <laughs> or at least one of the top two or three. Uh, you know that works both ways. Obviously, Kevin O'Sullivan. You can tell if you read his comments, he's not exactly a fan of it because. You know, he wanted to get people more at bats and actually get some uh, use out of the bullpen more than he did. So it, it goes both ways. But Florida certainly looked really good in all three phases of the game against Charleston Southern. They outscored him thirty-five to seven, outhit them thirty-four to seven. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it was just a dominant performance. They didn't commit an error. And you know, you look at the things they did. Obviously, the thing that stuck out to me the most was the starting pitching with the. Uh, Brandon Sproat and then Hurston Waldrop on game two and then Jack Caglione on game three. Those guys, all three were excellent. You know, you'll see more of these guys, but Jack Caglione to me is the most intriguing player on the team. Not only does he have, uh, you know, a great bat, uh, a lot of power in his first start since uh, June of 2021 uh, due to Tommy John surgery. He didn't pitch last year. He's back in the rotation. He threw a, he was in 99. He said once he looked up and saw the gun hit 99, yeah, okay, I'm fine. And then he went out and just dominated. So he's going to be fun to watch this year. But uh, all in all, a uh, very good performance. And, uh, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan, he's not one to – he's pretty critical of his team. And uh, he was uh, praised it quite a bit after the way they handled uh, the first series of the season. 
So baseball obviously just getting underway, and, and we've talked about softball a little bit. They're into week three now, and this past weekend they uh, kind of a, actually they they stayed undefeated, but sort of a mixed bag. Some tight games against teams you maybe wouldn't expect against Bowling Green and UConn uh, before then taking out their frustrations on Central Michigan and Delaware State winning back to back games, while well, fifteen to one and fifteen nothing in back to back games. Um, but Chris, as you noted last week. A lot of really impressive numbers against teams that are not necessarily going to be uh, Oklahoma City contenders. That changes this week. They go out to California as they do every year. Matchups with UCLA, with Oregon, a couple of the top teams in the country. So now you get a chance to see what Tim Walton's team is going to look like against the teams that will more define its season down the road. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that the, um, in the past they, they haven't encountered you know through the first uh I don't know, 10 games a season, maybe maybe a, a better team than they faced thus far. Maybe, maybe like a USF or something, and their one meeting at USF was postponed by weather down, down in Tampa. But uh, to your point, yes, you know, you're going to see UCLA. You know, we'll see what this reconfigured uh, uh, team looks like. We'll see, see what we get for, out, of, out of Elizabeth Hightower. Actually, we probably know what we're going to get out of Elizabeth Hightower. But um, several of those new players in their, in their new positions – the ones that are that are back uh, uh, a season ahead, uh, you know the the Kendra Falbies and what have you. Skylar Wallace is off to a very good start uh, so far. So they're playing as you would have expected given g- given the schedule thus far. But it's always good to uh, to give yourself a, a better a better measuring stick when you play team like like these 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 Pac-12 teams facing some really good pitching, facing some really good uh, hitters and defense and what have you and. And it'll be like, like I said, a a, a good barometer from which uh, Tim Walton can can go from there once they come back. Because the, still, the uh, the the SEC season isn't until you know another almost a month away. March twenty fourth, they open. Oh, excuse me, uh, it's March seventeenth. They open at home against Missouri, and then the second series of the season is at Arkansas, and they're the defending uh, SEC champions. So the Gators will get right into it once the once the conference season starts. Yeah, it starts to get interesting this week. Then it gets really interesting in a couple of weeks as the season progresses. Uh, we will stay locked in to what is going on with both baseball and softball in the next few weeks. I want to turn our attention out to a sport that we don't get to talk about very often, and that is swimming. Quite an achievement for the uh, the men's and the women's programs, sweeping the SEC championships. First time they've done that in 30 years, which when you look at the kind of success Florida has in sports like swimming, anytime you can do something that has been done in 30 years, you know it's an impressive feat. Yeah, Adam, uh, that was a huge uh, weekend for the Gators swimming. Uh, as you said, first time since uh, 1993, both the men and women won the SEC championship in the same season. And remember, go back about three or four years ago, and uh, Anthony Nesty uh, took over both programs, and he started recruiting at a very high level, which they have done, obviously, on the men's side, uh, having won 11 in a row. But they got that women's team up to speed, too. And, uh, you know, to, to do that, I mean, that's, that was a big moment uh, for what Nesty's done at Florida. How about this, guys? Those were the 257th and 258th SEC championships in Florida history, by far the most in the SEC across all the sports. Uh, 45th consecutive team title for the Gators in the SEC, at least one of the sports. So, you know, you go back, I mean uh, – I think it was really a team effort. I mean, you're looking at the names. And uh, one guy who did really steal some thunder was Josh Willendo, the freshman. Uh, he had a great meet. 
Uh, I think he caught a lot of attention uh, while he was up uh, out at Texas A&M. Um, but I just tip of the cap to Anthony Nessie's. He's obviously got the program home in the long right now, and uh, we'll see what they do on the national stage coming up in the, the uh, following weeks. Yeah, that national championship meets in Minneapolis, and isn't it great that the pool is inside when it comes to Minneapolis <laughs> hosting the national championship? 30 medals won by the Gators at the SEC championships. 10, 10, and 10, gold, silver, and bronze. And how many times did we see a championship heat where multiple lanes were filled by Gators? I mean, it's, it's awfully impressive. Scott mentioned the 11 straight for the men. I mean, that just takes your breath away almost. That's just complete dominance. We talk in sports about dynasties. If that's not a dynasty, I don't know what is. Um, and so, yeah, congratulations to Gators swimming and diving because this is stacking up to be, I think, a pretty spectacular spring ahead for the Gators across multiple platforms here and swimming and diving gets us started in grand fashion right there and we'll see what happens with some of these other sports that are going to swing toward their postseason shortly namely gators gymnastics which i'm curious to see how that goes and then we'll compound it hopefully with some success on softball and baseball i just you know i think gators fans have um grumbled a little bit about what's going on with men's and women's basketball how football season ended but Boy, uh, orange and blue skies ahead, it sure seems like, here to the end of the semester. Kudos to the women for getting this. Uh, they don't have, they're not on the successful run like the men have, but maybe I wonder if Katie Ledecky, volunteer assistant coach, may, may, may have been a factor with, with these women stepping, at, stepping up and kind of winning a championship. Just uh, some food for thought there. Sean, you mentioned gymnastics and the, the success that they had. They're actually coming off the first loss they've had in a very, very long time. That streak of SEC meets one uh, came to an end at LSU. But And what's ironic about that sport, and I guess it's it's actually not that ironic, this could happen in any sport, but it was one of their better scores of the season, but not quite enough to win. Sometimes it's weird to call it a loss because it lacks that head-to-head element, um, but still a very impressive score. Trinity Thomas had another incredible all-around performance, so even in a loss of the meet, positives to take away as, as they move forward. Yeah, Adam, uh, you know, the gymnastics team... Uh, had a disappointing trip to uh, LSU, I think, just with the result, as you said, that 27 uh, match unbeaten streak in SEC record in regular season was finally snapped. They hadn't lost the SEC regular season meet since 2019, but it was a very close match, and you know how these things work. You know, LSU probably got a little home judging, like the Gators might get a little home judging um, once in a while, too, so... I don't think they were too devastated by it because, you know, they come home this weekend, close out the regular season with the uh, final home meet of the year. I mean, it goes by so fast. I mean, uh, and then it's going to be a huge night because it's senior night. And you know what that means, guys. That means the last chance for the home fans to uh, watch Trinity Thomas in person. Uh, Adam touched on it. She had another spectacular performance at LSU, got another 10 and, um, I've said it, I've written it. I mean, I think she's the best athlete on campus right now. And so uh, there's going to be a packed house on Friday night at the O-Dome, about 10,000 there. And they're going to watch her. And then uh, they're going to watch six other uh, seniors on the on the roster. Uh, and, you know, they close the regular season at Oklahoma and then go to Texas, Texas Women's University. And then it really starts with some postseason. Uh, and that's what I think this team's built for. I think that's what they've been talking about and aiming for all season after finishing second in the nation last year to Oklahoma. So 
you know, we're, there's a lot of gymnastics left after the big one here Friday night, but uh, it's going to be huge with the Trinity Thomas senior night. And uh, man, she's a, she's made that place roar some the last five years, guys. For this week's PAT, I want to venture outside the world of sports and into the, uh, the incredible world of television. And I will say that when I, I did a, a, a test of this subject earlier this morning, uh, one of our panelists was not that enthusiastic about the inspiration. I don't want to say who it was, uh, but I, like so many people, have been captivated by The Last of Us on HBO. Probably the best TV show of the year. It's going to win a ton of awards when the time comes. And just one of those shows that takes something you think you know, which is a zombie apocalypse, and does something totally different with it. Um, but I don't know if you guys are watching that, and, and maybe you are, but you're not as enthusiastic. So I was thinking, what is the last TV show or shows... What's the last thing that you watched that just blew your mind and grabbed you in a way that you just couldn't wait to see what was going to happen next because of how good and how enthralling it was? Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to get my arms around the whole zombie apocalypse uh, movement in television. Uh, I think I am the last of us that watched The Walking Dead. Mm. Make that didn't watch The Walking Dead, so um, I don't understand the the zombie apocalypse thing, but I guess Yellowstone has intrigued me. Um, and then, of course, this time of year with travel and whatnot, occasionally can watch something on Netflix. So the bodyguard has stood out to me. And then this new um, docu-series that's going on with the PGA Tour called Full Swing. I heard about uh, this. Is going, is going to captivate some people. I, it's made by the same people that did the Formula One series and drew so many fans into Formula One that they're hoping the same here for the PGA Tour and golf in general. And I think as I'm getting to these next couple of episodes, there's quite a bit of talk about what the Live Golf Tour uh, is going to do or is doing to the uh, professional golf landscape. So, uh, Adam, I applaud your enthusiasm. Uh, and you've already labeled it. The, is it the best of us? The last of it? What is it again? The last of us. The last of us. Didn't we just have a, st- a series on regular TV, something about the best of us or all of us or this is us? Maybe it was the worst. Of this us. is a, this is us. Right. Um, so but you, you have gone out on a thick limb here, I guess, and declared it the best television show of the year. So I think it's a pretty I, I feel like it's pretty solid ground. I'm just trying to I'm trying to keep you guys plugged into the zeitgeist here. That's my role as the resident young person. Sean, you got to understand something here. I mean, Adam is a big pop culture guy. He tried to get a couple years ago. I know this is your first year here and everything. A couple years ago, he tried to get us to do a PAT about, you know, season 10 of The Bachelor because he's never missed a, an episode of it. So, I mean, that's <laughs> it's that's just kind of what and what he watches and who he is. That is as extreme of a fact error as has ever been stated on this show. Wow. <laughs> wow. Hot take. I do not support The Bachelor in any form. I do not do reality television. Chris is trying to, he's trying to label me with all the, uh, he's, he's putting me in the get off my lawn crowd. He likes to, uh, to yell at, you know? Oh, okay. Um, it's hard for me to get engaged in most anything that isn't sports related on television right now, this time of year. Um, summer is my, my best viewing time of the um, calendar year. And uh, so therefore I'm not as much of a help on this topic. I, you know what I do miss though? I, I miss the communal aspect that we used to have in television. It's so fragmented now. Um, it's hard to find a series or series, I guess, 
that draws the numbers that say a MASH did or I Love Lucy back when you only had three channels or four channels, a communal experience for everyone in the country. Um, but maybe your show, Adam, maybe your show will unite well, that, zombie see, fans everywhere. That's that's what's happening is that it's because it's it's not the, the binging model you know, whereas Netflix just drops all these shows at one time and no one gets to experience it together by having that cadence that every Sunday night when a new episode comes out, you have that communal experience. It's a lot of it's online, obviously on Twitter. You have the podcast realm that supports these shows. So I, I think I agree with what you're saying, Sean. That's one of the reasons why I've been so excited about what this show has done is it's creating that water cooler, even in a virtual sense, that it's just very hard to find these days. Yeah, I, yeah I, again, back to the original thought. I guess Yellowstone would be the most would be the most recent one for me. Personally, I'm not I'm not a binge guy. That's not to say I haven't uh, binged. Uh, I, I tend to think that these these great shows and uh, Sean mentioned Mash. Some of them, some of them just stay on the air too long. Mm-hmm. Like Mash, for example. I mean, I I love Mash, and it's probably the first half of its uh, I think eleven year existence. I mean, the Korea War I think was two and a half years, and here we are. We got a I think. Uh, you know, Alan Alda aged looked like 25 years in the 13 years <laughs> Mash was on. It looked like um, same with Loretta Swit for God's sake. Uh, uh, but I mean, uh, Mash stayed on too. Long. I think Seinfeld stayed on too long. I think you know during COVID, I, I finally watched Breaking Bad. I think that was about 10, 10 episodes too many. They you could think have so cut really? Down it was a, too... a lot of that stuff. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And and of course, Game of Thrones so I, it was massively disappointing. At the 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 last episode, and I think Seinfeld to a degree was real. I liked the whole idea of bringing all those characters back in that one courtroom. I thought that was that was pretty cool and all. But the whole ending, I don't know. Um, the the best show that I've watched, um, and I will say this about your Best of Us, Last of Us, Worst of Us, whatever it is. That isn't it by the guys that did Chernobyl. It is, yes. Yeah, and I and 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 I enjoyed that. It was only five episodes, if I'm not mistaken. I thought it was. It was very well done, uh, certainly uh, riveting and, and at times disturbing. But the best thing that I've ever seen that kind of what you would call like like a series or a, a, a something that I came back to was the, the first um, True Detective hmm. with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. I just thought that was just fantastic. And compared to the to the to the two series that came or two seasons that came after that, you know, the one with Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell. Uh, that abomination. One yeah, this the the third one with um, uh, uh, Mahershala Ali. Ali, correct? That that was okay. It's um, fine. I, I I heard they were trying to make a fourth one. They actually just put out a, a photo from that shoot this week, and it's uh, Jodie Foster is in it. I know she's in. It. I'm not sure who very else. Good, very good. But the the first one I thought is anytime I'm going to ask, what's the best thing you've ever binged? That's my that's my number one choice. And maybe it's because it was tight, and maybe I have a low attention span. I don't know. Um, but I just thought it was really, really well done and, uh, uh, certainly, certainly kept my attention. The most recent was after I got back from the Las Vegas bowl, I was sick for about 10 days there, but that first day, you know, you start feeling better. I started watching this HBO series and before I move on, HBO is the king of the best series. Yes. And I got into it and I couldn't stop watching. I watched all seven episodes without turning off. It was mayor of East town. Ooh, Mayor of East Town is great. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I, I was just glued in. I couldn't take my, I couldn't turn an episode off, even though I was tired. The story gripped me. Her acting was unbelievable. It's kind of a dark story, but, uh, you know, it was just a great series. And 
you know, we, you know, we could talk about these series. Like Sean said, everything is fragmented now mm-hmm. and it's all on demand. So we all watch it on our own time. And, you know, something new to me might be old to you guys or vice versa. Uh, but uh, whenever I really want to watch something and get into something, I try to find something. I go to HBO and click on their series. And almost every time, I'm never disappointed. So that is my suggestion here, guys. Very solid choice, Scott. A great way to uh, to bring it full circle uh, on this episode that I guess is is brought to you by HBO Max. Uh, this is not a paid advertisement. Brought to you by zombies. Brought to you by zombies, and especially the ones that are on HBO Max. Um, good opportunity to dig into some things. Give The Last of Us a chance. You won't be disappointed, but there's lots of other great shows out there as well. Uh, so we hope that this brief departure into pop culture has given people some ideas and some inspiration to check out uh, fiction that is captivating these days. But thank you guys so much for sharing everything about the, the non-fiction work that you do covering the Gators, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. You've probably heard the word analytics thrown around a lot since Todd Golden took over the men's basketball program. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered what exactly that means and how it translates to what you see on the floor. To help color in the details on this rapidly growing approach to coaching, we spoke to Jonathan Sapphire, the director of basketball strategy and analytics, and began by finding out how his background got him where he is today. I grew up. Born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Uh, I'm a diehard Bills fan. I'd say apologies for the latest uh, the latest shortcomings of the Bills. As we like to say, there's always next year. So hopefully right. uh, Josh Allen and, and, and company can get it done for us. But uh, yeah, I grew up loving the game of basketball. Uh, ever since my bar mitzvah or thereabouts, I realized uh, playing wasn't uh, playing the NBA. <laughs> wasn't a realistic goal. I figured I'd turn my, turn my uh, aspirations to the next best thing, which is uh, coaching. So I wanted to coach, coach, coach. Was fortunate enough to play uh, Division Three ball at Vassar uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York, and then was landed with Coach Smith as a grad assistant at Columbia, where I was in the sports management program and got my master's there. And from there, basketball operations. And then I joined Coach Smith out west uh, when a spot came open for his, on a staff out of San Francisco. And then got connected with Coach Golden in San Francisco, and, and the rest is kind of history. So you, you talked about you know being into basketball pretty early, as far as you can remember. Um, what was it about the game that, that drew you in? Why was basketball the sport you gravitated to? Yeah, it kind of goes back, I guess, to your first question, which I somewhat answered. But when you asked my parents, my dad was a uh, my dad owns a furniture store. My mom's a real estate agent in uh, Buffalo, New York, and uh, my dad has always been uh, he's, he's always coached my teams, my little league teams, my my youth basketball teams, and whatnot. And he's always had a passion for coaching as well. And he he was he was an assistant coach for the JV team when I was growing up uh, at our high school. And his passion for, for basketball and coaching and helping others and inspiring people kind of rubbed off on me and, and something that I want I strive to do and want to give back. And and that has played a huge role and instrumental in in who I am and, and where I got to be. Where did your interest in analytics come into play? Was this did this start as, you know, something connected to to math and and just separate from basketball and then you sort of merge them or were you were you always looking for ways to look at the game in a different way? Uh, all of the above. I think uh, my my affinity for numbers and stats and data started uh, when I learned about sports and got involved in, in watching sports and fantasy football and mm-hmm. rotisserie baseball. And I, used to, I, I we joke, I used to learn to count by twos and threes for basketball shots and sixes and sevens <laughs> and threes for field goals and touchdowns and extra points for yeah. football. Um, but my, my math skills got 
were accelerated from from sports and being able to apply it. And then I, I always enjoyed math itself. Uh, but then I got a little bit of lost in the abstract nature. When it gets abstract, I lose it a little bit. And I'm much better at the application of said numbers and, and whatnot. And was able to combine those passions and find something like statistics and, and applying it to the game of basketball. Uh, and was passionate and, and, and loved it. I was fortunate, obviously, when I joined Coach Smith's staff at Columbia. He's very analytical, analytically savvy mm-hmm. uh, and forward-thinking, and obviously Coach Golden as well, uh, and just was watching in real time the application of said numbers, and it just clicked and was able to process and help out and, and learn and grow through that tree. This is the Coach Smith, the Coach Golden tree, and just kind of trying to add value any way I can. It's interesting because I remember when I, I spoke to to Coach Golden for this podcast a few months ago, he talked about how he had he looked at a lot of different avenues besides getting into coaching and thought there were you know, a lot of other things he could do he could be successful at. I imagine w- with your background, with your uh, with your degrees, you could have gone a lot of directions with that that data mindset and gotten into any type of business, I imagine. So is there, did, did your parents give you any grief when you said, no, no, no I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it for basketball. Like, wait, wait, but, but what about, what about investment banking or something yeah. like that? No, it's funny you say that because when I was graduating Vassar, it was all my friends applying for jobs and knowing exactly what they were doing in December and January of their senior year. And I was sitting there having no idea what I was going to do by in May. At graduate. Really the week before graduation was when I found out I got into the Columbia program. I was going to be a grad assistant there, mm-hmm. but Obviously, that process always plays out a little bit later than normal, quote unquote, normal or traditional students um, and what they're trying to do. Uh, but my parents were incredibly supportive. They, they they encouraged me and wanted me to chase my dreams and said they'd support me any way they can and any way how uh, for at least the first couple of years to try and help me. Because obviously, it's it's very difficult to make a career in sports. It's, it's just simple supply and demand, simple economics and numbers. If everyone wants to get into the sports world. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to pay and, and compensate a lot less at the beginning uh, because it's it's survival of the fittest and, and just the reality. So no, they were, they were super supportive. And that's a lot of the reason why I'm, I am where I am today is, is their help both really in all, all ways, whether it's financially, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of the above is their support, love, guidance, nourish, nourishment, all of the above um, has helped me along the way. And, and they were understanding of, Hey, you, you, you are capable. You are very smart. You can do a lot of different things besides coach. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you don't want to go make six figures on day one as an yeah. investment go work on wall street and they were super supportive and understanding that my dad's favorite line is if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life mm-hmm. that's kind of the ethos i live by so and I, I love what i do and i'm fortunate i've been fortunate extremely fortunate just to surround myself and 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 be involved and included with some awesome and special people and it's just helped when you decided to really start merging this with basketball and, and having that sort of be your your approach in what ways did you start implementing that? I mean, from day one, because I imagine it's not just all of a sudden, okay, we're going to run everything based on analytics. There's got to be, it's got to be a gradual process of, of introducing that. So when, when you were at Columbia and then San Francisco, how did you start working that into the game plans, into what you were teaching, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's part of how I got a little bit lucky and fortunate. The Coach Smith tree, Coach Golden everything we do is driven by data and numbers and, and we have a we're, we're second nature with regards to our, how we think about basketball through numbers and analytics. So uh, we're already starting at, at a spot that we understand each other and, and, and how we're going to work off of, off of the data. And we use hustle stats and that's kind of, it's a, it's a metrics we create from our practice stats. And that's kind of a way that allows us to, to base everything off of and, and kind of just goes back to, 
it being second nature and, and kind of just a part of who we are and how we think about and, and approach everything about the game, uh, whether it's scouting, in-game preparation, uh, recruiting, scheduling, all of the above. I know when, when it gets into the, the nitty-gritty on this, it can be hard to understand for, for the layman because you guys obviously do this at a very, very high level. But what areas are most important when you're looking at the analytics and you're, you're making decisions? What are some of the – is it specific statistics, specific categories – that you guys value and that goes into an equation most frequently? I mean, what's the easiest way to explain what you guys do? Well, it just depends on what it's about. Like if it's about scheduling, it's trying to maximize quad one or quad two opportunities and then play what we call the barbell theory. So some top end opponents, some opponents that we think there's a 90 plus percent chance that we can beat. We try try and avoid the middle opponents. If it's recruiting, it's looking at certain numbers and, and data from, from priors of how certain players transfer up a level or, or, or if they're going down a level, how, how, how they would, what correlates to success at certain levels, um, things of that nature. And if it's game preparation, maybe it's analyzing um, their, their percentages of how many shots are threes and, and just different things like that and kind of trying to formulate a game plan and strategy um, around that. Uh, you hear so much about the uh, the Ken Palm rankings. I feel like most people probably don't even know who or what Ken Palm is. Uh, <laughs> why why is why is the 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 Ken Palm rankings? Why have those become kind of the gold standard of basketball analytics and, and so well respected as well? I think a huge part of it is it's accessible. It's accessible to all. It was free for a long time, and now it's nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents. So twenty dollars, you're getting. Uh, just a plethora of information right at your fingertips and then how easily digestible it is and, and how relatable it is. It's, but green is good and red is bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So even, even if you don't understand the numbers and the data, you can just look and say, Oh, like looking at their schedule, green, we won red, we lost looking at our offense, uh, our offensive rebound percentages in red, our effective field goal percentage on defense is in green. Oh, we're sixth best effective field goal percentage defense. We're, we're the 256th best at offensive rebounding. Okay, um, that red is bad. It correlates with not being as good. 256. Green is uh, good. We're the sixth best effective field goal percentage defense. And it, 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 it's easy uh, to read and understand nature, I think, plays a key component in, in it becoming as big as it has. Uh, but also, I think it's just incredibly valuable. It's, it's a great resource. When most people hear analytics in sports, they probably think about Moneyball, right? Because it's something everybody knew about. It was a movie. Brad Pitt was in it. Um, it was easy to understand. It was easy to to digest. How much of what you guys are doing do you think is is new to the game and to coaching at this level, or is it just taking what was done before and and using it in a different way? I think a lot of it is taking what's already been done or what's already out there and publicly available and using it either in the same way or in different ways. We like to joke and, and think in our office that we're about as forward thinking as a staff as a group of coaches can be for not being able to code. We run some numbers through Excel and whatnot, but none of us have a coding uh, or computer software background. Uh, so really for us, we take readily available information and, our, and just apply it and try and find incremental advantages and differential edges by applying readily available information. And one of the biggest components, and it can't be understated, is the fact that Coach Golden is so willing and risk-willing and risk-taking on things and ideas that I bring him or anybody can bring him that he's willing to apply it. It's ultimately him as the head coach who if we try something unconventional like following up by one at the end of the game and then we lose by one, that has to answer questions. It's his name. It's his reputation. It's him who has to be okay trusting the data, trusting the process, and knowing that if we're taking our win expectancy from 60% to 65%, 
that still means we lose 35% of the time. It still might not work X percent of the time. And he has to understand that. And he has to be okay with that. And he has to know the, com- the backlash that comes with that. So he deserves a ton of respect and credit for being willing to accept new innovative ideas and apply them. Uh, speaking to that, I know that you uh, you co-authored a study with Ken Palm. We were just talking about Ken Palm. Ken Pomeroy is the guy. So people are like, is this a real person? Ken Pomeroy is his name. Um, and it was all about fouling in non-traditional scenarios. How did that become real area of focus for you? What did you latch on to about that and want to dive into it to, to that degree? Yeah, that was actually super unique. That came about because uh, when Coach Gold first got the head coaching job at San Francisco, we uh, met with Ken at the Final Four, myself, Coach Golden, Ken, and Jordan Sperber, a good friend of mine who's also in the basketball analytics space. And we just asked Ken, like, hey, what is one, what, what is one thing teams are not doing that they should be doing that can provide an edge? And he said, why don't teams should foul at the end of halves if they're in the one-on-one instead of, instead of allowing an opponent to hold for the last shot? And we started thinking about it, and the last shot of a half is worth 0.8 points per possession. But if you don't get a shot, you lose that small little 25-second period, 0.8 to 0 on average. If you follow a one and one free throw shooter, say he's a 60% free throw shooter, that's 0.6. You're giving him 0.6 and they have a 0.6% chance, a 60% chance of earning a second shot. It's also a 40% chance he misses the first and you just get the ball back, giving him mm-hmm. nothing. There's a 60% chance he gets a second shot after scoring one point. So 0.6 times 0.6 is 0.36. 0.6 plus 0.36 is 0.96. So you're giving them 0.96, technically, on points per possession, which is more than 0.8. Mm-hmm. However, you're now getting that 0.8. So instead of losing 0.8 to zero, you're losing 0.96 to 0.8, which doesn't sound like much, but over the course of time can add up. And that was an idea we, we applied. And then we thought about, hey, they could also work at end of game situations. Everyone thinks, oh, you're up by three, must foul. What if you're up by one or two or tied and don't want to play overtime or want the ball back to try and score, to try and score and win the game in regulation? And we were playing BYU and we were up by three at home and we were underdogs and didn't want overtime, and BYU was the best three-point shooting team in the country, and it had already made 13 or 14 threes in that game. Hmm. Uh, and we thought it was a great idea. Uh, they called timeout, and I brought the coach's attention. He said, yeah, let's do it. And we followed them, and, and we ended up winning the game on uh, regulation. And then after the season, COVID happened, and we had a lot of time. And I reached out to Ken about, hey, like we had this really cool thing or really interesting idea, and we did it, and it worked. But we don't know the exact data of when we should and shouldn't do it. We kind of want to do it. We might want to do it more. Mm-hmm. And Kevin was like, hey, that's a great idea. Like, I loved it. Obviously, he and I had had a relationship. We talked about it and talked about that specific instance. And he was willing to spend a lot of time during COVID with me on the data and whatnot, because he knew that we were willing to, depending on what the data said, continue to do it and apply it even more so and continue to expand upon that idea. And he was willing to help out. And that was kind of the genesis and origin of it and work together on it. And we, we, we used it last year at Portland as well. Hmm. It's it's kind of a, a renegade idea. And I'm thinking when you would do that, the first reaction from so many people would be like, well, you can't do that. They'd say, why? Because well, no one no one's ever done that before. Right. So how much of what you do is sort of railing against the conventional wisdom that not only exists outside the building, but I'm sure you guys to some degree also have that that barometer of wait. Is this too far? Is this too radical? Should we be doing this? Even if the numbers tell us it's something that might work because it's not what we're used to doing. Exactly. I think the worst way, the worst thing one can do in answering a question for why they do something is, quote, that's the way it's always been done. Well, what exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? Coach Golden and I was talking about, if you look at football, for example, if, if, if people started playing football uh, today and the rules were just created today, four plays, you get a first down. If you don't get it, the other team gets the ball. 
or after the third play, the option to kick it away to the other team. I think almost every team would be would go for it on fourth down and, and not even think about punting unless they're inside their own 20 or, or if it was like fourth and 35. Mm-hmm. But the idea of punting was just how the game was always played and, and, and whatnot. It's, just, it's, a, it's such an archaic way of thinking. Uh, that I think it would be a foreign idea. And you'd be like, what? We're going to willingly give the ball to the other team, even though we're at year 40? Even though right. it's only 4th and 12, we're just going to give you the ball? What? I have one more down. And the rationale the, the rationale given is often that's the way it's always been done. And I think people are just so unwilling to challenge conventional norms and think differently uh, and then handle backlash and criticism when it doesn't go right. Because even if it is the right decision, it increases your odds to win or get the first down. It may not work and you may lose and you may have to answer questions. And those questions aren't always the easiest. And you have to have you have to have understanding and buy-in from if you're an NFL team, from your GM and your owner, and if you're a college basketball coach from your athletic director. It's the reality. That's <laughs> how it works. Yeah. I talked to um I talked to Will Richard this past week and, and asked him a similar question about how how the players have accepted the introduction of this. So I'm curious, how difficult is it sometimes to get the players on board with something that the the data is showing you? that maybe may not naturally occur to them as something they should be doing more of or less of? How receptive do the players need to be for this to work? And how receptive have they been? They've been super receptive. And I think we, we introduce it and teach it in a way that it's always beneficial. It helps them become better players. I think that's the key is we don't try and inundate them and swamp them with too much data. A lot of it, we don't even necessarily let them know. Like we, we shoot a lot of rim twos and threes and we work on when we practice dummy offense, it's all layups or rim twos and threes. We don't shoot really any mid-range shots in, in, in dummy offense. And and um, that's not to say all mid-range are bad. We encourage some mid-range and some some are good, especially going towards the basket. Uh, but that's just one way of how we kind of work on what we want to work on and, and are analytically driven without even re- really being at the front of mind. Uh, and then when there is certain things that we want to introduce analytically or say, hey, you're more efficient in area X than Y, we just kind of bring them in and, and show them the data, the numbers, and, the, and 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 how it works and how it can improve their game. And improving their game ultimately helps us win more games, which in turn helps them. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Hmm. A couple of final things for you. What do you feel like are the most misunderstood or mischaracterized aspects of the analytics-based approach to coaching and, and to operating a team? Uh, that's a great question. I think we're incredibly conscious and aware of of our relationships and continuing to build our relationships with the players and treating them uh, like the awesome humans and individuals they are. And I think one thing that's misunderstood is, oh, like anybody who cares about numbers doesn't really value the human or, or the human element or the human person. And we would strongly push back on that and think that that's one area that we strive to be really good at is is building relationships and valuing them as human beings, both on and off the court. So then when we do talk about that, talk to them about some data, they understand it's coming out of play, from a place of love and and, and care. Uh, and we want to make it as fun and as joyful as possible while, while helping them improve their games to help us win games. Hmm. Final question for you, and you talked about some of the, the things you guys look at. I'm, I'm curious, what is the next frontier in your field? What's the next thing that's going to happen in the analytics space that's going to take this even further? Yeah, I wish I knew. Because if I did that, I would, I would invest in whatever company I thought would, would, would be on the cutting edge in the forefront. I, I don't know, maybe sleep recovery. I think there's already companies starting to work on that player tracking and different movements. Uh, I think there still needs to be a, there's still room for player tracking player data space in the college game. I know there's a lot of different camera systems in the NBA, but college is a lot more robust and difficult with 357 or however many division one teams there are now, but that's probably 
a key frontier in the college space. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today and, and helping us learn a little bit more about what goes into the nuts and bolts of the operation. And I wish you a lot of luck the rest of the way. Adam, this is awesome. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales.